Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all so much for being with us for our show today. Um, you know, uh, my father was a great collector of newspaper front pages, historic newspaper front pages. He literally had hundreds of them that he preserved when the headlines uh, uh, foretold told of, of momentous events in the world. And I have several of them framed and hanging in my office at my house. And one of them is from the Chicago Daily News and the banner headline as you can imagine, in 72-point bold type, is Nazis roll into Poland. And it's hard not for me not to look at that headline today and realize that what we're watching unfold in Ukraine as Russian troops invade Ukraine is um, the most significant uh, action, military action in Europe since World War II. Um, the world is still shocked and reeling from what's happening there, and it has found its way into Georgia, uh, both in terms of the military here, politics here, Ukrainian immigrants who are living here and are desperately trying to stay in touch with their families back in Ukraine, some of them trying to get their families out. So we're going to start our show today uh, talking about what's happening uh, there and how it's impacting us all right here in Georgia. So with all that in mind, let me get right to our panel. It's Friday. Patricia Murphy, who, of course, is a political reporter and a political columnist. She writes the Political Insider column for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read that on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper. Uh, and she also oversees the jolt at AJC.com, which is where, if you really care about politics, you go to find interesting news uh, uh, every single day, updated throughout the day. Uh, Patricia, it is not an exaggeration to say, I don't think, we're all still a little bit stunned by what we're watching unfold in Ukraine. Yeah, the images, um, particularly on CNN, I think they've done an immensely uh, uh, thorough job really keeping people informed. We are watching um, an invasion unfold in real time, and it's a city that um, many people are familiar with. It's the largest country in Europe invading the second largest country in Europe. And it's um, it's really hard to process. It's hard to almost believe it's happening. And it's a little scary to think about where it could be going. Absolutely. Um, and we're going to talk about a column that you posted online uh, this morning that's also going to appear in the newspaper on Sunday, which talks about political reaction here in Georgia. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. Uh, Renee Alegria who is the CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital, joins us as well. Uh, before the show, Renee, I uh, said that I'd been watching CNN as Patricia has. And I have to say that the way in which they've covered this reminds me of what an extraordinary organization Ted Turner originally built with his vision for a world news organization. CNN is everywhere covering this thing in an extraordinary way. And I really do think it has to go back to Ted Turner's vision. Of course, he's long since no longer a part of CNN, uh, but it was his impulse to build it. And now we see the fruits once again, as we do in so many world crises. But Renee, welcome to the show today. Thank you very much for having me, Bill. Um, we're also- I do, I do think- Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, please, no, go no, ahead. No, 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 I was just gonna uh, just piggyback on what you said about uh, Ted Turner and you know having- uh, Atlanta-born media property really just cover the global news and the impact of what it has on on us here uh, in the United States and throughout the world. I think that it was the start of 
many media properties from Georgia, the AJC being one of them, Mundo Hispanico <laughs> being another that are born here and, you know, cover what we do and uh, provide news and information for the people who uh, who come onto our sites. Uh, thank you for adding all of that uh, uh, this morning. <laughs> uh, we're also joined by Professor Andrew Gillespie. Uh, you know her well. She's a professor of political science at Emory University, also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. Um, Andra, it, it, I, I suppose it, it's almost sort of self-evident to say this, but um, I'm sure the shock of what's happening has hit you as hard as everyone else. Yeah, I mean, I care about this as a, as, as a citizen. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't study IR as a political scientist anymore, so it's certainly not where my research area is. So I uh, had a great dinner last night where, you know, I talked about this with colleagues who might know a little bit more about this, but, you know, this is something that we should all care about, even though it seems like it's happening, you know, half a world away. Um, okay, well, let's dig into uh, to this. First of all, uh, we should say that um, 3,800 uh soldiers from Fort Stewart, from the, uh, most of them from the 3rd Infantry 1st Armored Brigade Combat Team, uh, which is known as the Raider Brigade, are all now being deployed to Germany, part of a 12,000-troop uh, addition of forces that uh, the president has ordered sent uh, to first Germany and then perhaps to other NATO-aligned countries as a response to what's happening in Ukraine right now. So we're thinking about the folks down there in uh, southeast Georgia around Fort Stewart who um, may be family members of those who are being uh, deployed. Um, but Patricia, look, let's start by, we've got to put a political lens on this because this is, after all, political rewind. In your talk, tell us a little bit about what you wrote this morning and let's use that as a beginning of our conversation of uh, how politics are playing into all of this. So I wrote this morning about the responses that we've seen from Georgia leaders and Georgia candidates. Um, they have had, they've varied quite a bit. Um, but to me, a crisis like this is something that really tests the mettle of the leaders we've already elected. And it really tests sort of the tenor and the response to a crisis um, from people who are asking us to elect them as our next leaders. And so somebody like Governor Kemp, I was actually a little surprised. He was out with a statement before dawn on Friday morning um, talking about uh, not just the invasion, but also really putting the blame squarely on Vladimir Putin mm -hmm. um, and talking about um, ways that he would be preparing for the state. We heard from him later talking about preparing the state for possible cyber attacks, uh, possible increases in prices, um, possible supply chain disruptions. So uh, you don't even think really about a governor having to be impacted by uh, an incursion overseas, but he certainly is um, leaning forward and preparing for that. Um, as far as candidates go, uh, we've seen Republicans really splitting into two camps, it seems to me. There are Republicans who are blaming Vladimir Putin for the invasion that Vladimir Putin is conducting. And so you think about somebody like Congressman Buddy Carter, Congressman um, Austin Scott, Jody Heiss. Those are the people already sitting in Congress and know a lot about these issues, especially Austin Scott, um, was in Brussels this week at the NATO Alliance. So um, those are informed, I think, uh, really nuanced strategic responses. Um, those who are more closely aligned with President Trump, Herschel Walker, um, who has, uh, through no fault of his own, just no foreign policy experience really at all, so he uh, is clearly relying on guidance from President Trump. So instead of blaming um, uh, Vladimir Putin for this, there is a camp of Republicans in the state who are blaming Joe Biden and saying this wouldn't have happened if President Trump was still the president. And we heard the president this week say that. We've heard the president praise Vladimir Putin for being smart, for going in, uh, for taking property, uh, for invading uh, without a whole lot of resistance, the way that uh, the president's described it. So I think we learn an immense amount from leaders and uh, candidates in, uh, in a crisis like this. And I think this is uh, no exception. Um, Andra, it, 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 to pick up on uh, what Patricia was saying, uh, this notion, David Perdue uh, is one of those who has now issued a statement saying this would never have happened if Donald Trump were still president of the United States. And, and there's something kind of and, and of course, we know there are other Republicans, as, as Patricia points out, who are echoing that same line, although uh, there are not many in Georgia 
who have picked up on Trump's praise of Vladimir Putin, which has been a very disorienting thing to watch unfold. But so uh, speak to all that. Um, so there's a lot that's going on here, and it's not 100 percent coherent. So part of what the underlying theme here is, is hyperpartisanship. And so there used to be, you know, the statement that partisanship ended at the shores of the United States. And so when international crises happened, people tended to rally around uh, the president. And there was uh, there was a consensus between Democrats and Republicans that we should present a united front in the hyperpartisan polarized era that we're in now. That's clearly not the case. And so when you see some, you know, establishment Republicans who will support Ukraine, but not necessarily support the president, that's where that's coming in. And then there are the dyed in the wool, hyper partisan. It doesn't matter if Joe Biden is for it. They have to be against it, whether or not it actually goes into international interest. The thing that's really troubling about this is to listen to Donald Trump. So this wouldn't have happened under Donald Trump. Well, based on what he said this week, Donald Trump might have been in cahoots with Vladimir Putin and might have actually helped facilitate it, make it happen, at least rhetorically. That's troubling. The fact that he made analogs to Mexico and that we should probably do the same thing to secure our southern border. All of a sudden, I had visions in my head of him trying to find separatists in Tijuana and Ciudad Juarez to try to, like, you know, say that, like, you know, we don't want to be part of Mexico anymore. Therefore, the U.S. has the right to invade or at least to put a security force in there. And then there's just the larger issue of lying, making stuff up, violating international law and exhibiting authoritarian tendencies that I still find very troubling that the Republican Party will not forcefully come out against and repudiate. And I think how people, particularly Republican voters, receive this will have a lot to do uh, with uh, how partisan they want to be um, and how much they actually are sort of thinking about this in, in the light of history and what we know about geopolitics in that region historically. Yeah, you know, uh, Renee, it, it, it strikes me that it's interesting that when a Jody Heiss who uh, Patricia mentioned a couple of minutes ago, who has been one of those perpetrators of the big lie who voted against certifying the uh, election results in Georgia. When Jody Heiss does not echo Donald Trump in praising Vladimir Putin, in which instead he makes a statement uh, in support of our forces, you know, the whatever can be done to stop Russia from moving forward. That strikes me as a cautionary tale in terms of what other Republicans out there ought to be thinking about. At a certain point, the question is, if, if you get in bed with Trump on this issue, are you going to pay a price for it down the line or is are you bulletproof no matter what because Trump is in your corner? Well, I think that Trump is looking at this as a reality show. Um, that's what he's good at. That's the language from which he speaks. Uh, I, I personally cannot believe that I'm hearing uh, anyone uh, who was a former president of the United States call Putin a genius, really almost uh, endorse what's going on. Look, I, I grew up um, a Hispanic in southern Arizona at a time when Reagan uh, ruled the uh, political uh, airwaves and you know his, his rhetoric reagan's pro democracy pro liberty against authoritarianism um i keep thinking what would my late parents think about trump saying exactly the opposite of what reagan had basically built the the contemporary united states uh for and about and and i i just it it, it astounds me you know, and and what and how scary it is. I, I do think that there is going to be a camp that uh, regrets even remotely falling into the column of where Trump stands and Fox News, for that matter. I mean, uh, the talking heads on Fox News are, are are holding Putin up as a symbol of strength who, you know, shares their values, racist, authoritarian, homophobic um, and meanwhile, they villainized the left for calling out their own racism, authoritarianism, homophobia. You know, so I, I, I think that there's going to be a lot of regret. And I do think that as this escalates into what the new world order is going to shape up, there are going to be those who regret at all standing by what some in the Republican Party are doing. I, I do commend Kemp for 
for doing what he did and pointing the finger exactly on who it should be pointed toward, and that's Putin. Uh, you know, it, he he proved deft in in that respect. I I wonder, you know, where where the Democrat uh, gubernatorial candidate are, you know, in all of this. I I would love to hear where Stacey Abrams is. Uh, but we haven't yet, you know, so so it's it's going to be interesting. Well, and yes, I do think that this is a test. I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you. I said, yes, we have. Stacey Abrams did, in fact, issue a oh, okay. statement. I don't have it in I front of me, but cer- but she issued a very strong statement saying okay. we cannot uh, that that people who support democracy are essentially outraged by what's happening. I so, stand corrected. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, Patricia, let me just uh, put a couple of finishing notes on this with your help here before we move on to other subjects. Uh, it, it, Renee mentions Fox News. Um, it, Tucker Carlson, for weeks and weeks, has been uh, essentially uh, promoting Vladimir Putin. As recently as Wednesday night, now that's the night before the invasion, he said, and I'll read from uh, 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 my monitor here, why do Democrats want you to hate Putin? Has Putin shipped every middle-class job in your town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide, pan- worldwide pandemic that wrecked your business? Is he teaching your kids to embrace racial discrimination? Is he making fentanyl? Does he eat dogs? Um, and Patricia, to go back to what Andra said, there was a time when Americans came together and understood the importance of supporting the leadership of the country in the face of a great crisis. Now, that can come unraveled. It certainly did in Vietnam when the country eventually turned against it. Uh, It did in the Iraqi war. But when these things get underway, we usually stand united. And it's really really mind-boggling to see uh, a major cable network that doesn't seem to want to get with the program, at least certainly Tucker Carlson and some of his friends on Fox. Yeah, well, I think it's important to take a step back here away from Tucker Carlson's, um, I don't even want to call them talking points. I don't know who would come up with something like that to tell him to say, um, to take a step back and understand that this is a major ground invasion in Europe Um, that has the potential to um, upset the entire world order. I think it destabilizes the country. It destabilizes the globe. Um, It uh, puts the question of China's future into play as well. Um, This is all done by Vladimir Putin. And um, the people who are criticizing Donald Trump, not sorry, not Donald Trump, but criticizing Joe Biden as being weak, the greatest strength that any president has is the unity behind him of his president and so for of his country rather. And so for people who are criticizing him as weak, if they would support the country, it would be the first and fastest way to strengthen the hand of the American president in these negotiations. And this is just an incredibly tense, dangerous time with people's lives absolutely on the line and the future of the global world order on the line. And so for Tucker Carlson to be using rhetoric like that to me is just totally un-American. I don't really use that term very often, but I think it's the only word for it. It doesn't mean you have to be loyal to a person or a president or his policies, but you do need to support your country in a moment like this. And I think it's just wildly irresponsible. Andra? You know, I think we just need to say this, that Tucker Carlson is the father Coughlin of our generation and Mm. it needs to be repudiated Um, and businesses need to or advertising on Fox need to reconsider their stance. Um, And again, um, Republicans of of, of goodwill need to stand up and speak out against this Um, and academics who are experts in this region need to have more prominent voices and a platform to be able to explain why that is noise, why it's very dangerous noise, and why it is incredibly ill-informed, right? It's real easy to get a bunch of hacks to sit and say a bunch of stuff for kicks because they think it's funny, but people's lives are literally on the line at this point. And the fact that the Russians have taken over Chernobyl, I'm still trying to figure that out, but like that reminds us of what the existential threat is because there are nuclear weapons that are at bay. So the idea that you can just come around and say a whole bunch of stuff and sound ironic and cute, like this is just, this is, this is, there never was the time, but it's especially not the time now. 
Um, we're going to get to a break uh, and, before, and then move on to other subjects. But, but I will say, and based on what you've just mentioned, Andre, there are reports this morning that since the Russians uh, moved in on Chernobyl, troops are in place, there are tanks that rolled in, other armored vehicles, um, monitors of the air there have seen a, a significant rise in uh, radioactive uh, particles in the air, dust kicked up by those Russians uh, moving in. So um, uh, that's a troubling and concerning uh, factor in all of this as well. All right, let's do this. Uh, let's get to our first break of the show. When we come back, we're going to pick up a story that just broke on the wires. If you're listening to us at uh, during the 9 a.m. hour, uh, President Biden has apparently made his choice uh, for his nominee for the Supreme Court. We'll talk about that and a lot more in just a moment. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Today, uh, Renee Alegria, Mundo Hispanico, Andrew Gillespie, Emory University, and of course, Patricia Murphy, AJC political reporter and columnist, join me. All right, everybody. I want to get your quick response to the fact that the wires have just moved the story, uh, and I'll read the New York Times version of it. President Biden has selected Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson as his nominee for the Supreme Court. Two people familiar with his decision said that choosing a well-regarded federal appeals court judge who, if confirmed, would make history by becoming the first black woman to serve as a justice. Um, Andra, we know that there have been some Republicans, not all of them, uh, who have uh, attacked Biden uh, for wanting to, uh, for saying he'd nominate an African American woman, calling it an equal opportunity hire. Um, but the fact of the matter is, um, this is a well thought of ju- uh, judge, and Republicans are going to have a very hard time figuring out if they want to attack this nomination, how to do it without making themselves uh, look uh, uh, pretty out of the mainstream. Andra? Yeah, I mean, I think that that was always the challenge. And and I will say this as a professional Black woman, um, she's been called an affirmative action hire before and knows how to navigate that. Um, And so uh, we just have to call that out for the racism that it is and sort of understand the dynamics of it. People weren't saying that over 30 years ago when Clarence Thomas uh, was uh, nominated to the court, clearly an African-American to replace an African-American to preserve descriptive representation. Um, It's okay to say that. And I think by choosing Judge Jackson, who is obviously eminently qualified, who has made it through this Judiciary Committee and this Senate already this year, who is in the stepping stone position to make it into the Supreme Court by serving on the U.S. Court, uh, on the D.C. Circuit, sort of in the Court of Appeals, right? She clearly is qualified for the job. So I dare anybody to say anything against that. I think this is also a safe choice. She's vetted. She's been through the process before. She was a finalist uh, for the seat, uh, you know, that's uh, that that's now held uh, uh, that that uh, Merrick Garland didn't get. So, you know, this this is, is somebody who we shouldn't expect any surprises from. And so I think that this was a sound choice. And so I think conventional wisdom prevailed here for all of the reasons that we thought it would. Uh, Patricia, aside from uh, the, 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 the chances of being good that this is going to be someone who will add a lot to uh, the court, what about the politics of this? What does this mean uh, in terms of Joe Biden as he deals with the lowest approval ratings uh, he's ever had in his tenure, 41-some percent. Uh, how much good does this do him personally as, a, as, a, as president? Uh, it should do him a lot of good, and it should do him a lot of good with the same people he really needs to boost enthusiasm from, um, which are uh, Black female voters and Black uh, black women have never had one of their own on the Supreme Court. It's just never happened. And so this will be a really historic moment, I think an emotional moment for a lot of people to see that kind of representation on the court. And it's so important because um, it's important to have those faces as a part of the judicial system for people going through the judicial system to have confidence in it and just to begin to see, for everybody to be able to see somebody like themselves as a part of the judicial process at the highest level, I think is crucially important. It also uh, could give Biden just a nice tidy win after a really rough couple of months, almost an entire year of being bogged down in a lot of really tough headlines. Um, uh, Kentonji 
Ketanji Brown Jackson uh, got through the Judiciary Committee and the Senate um, just eight months ago. And mm -hmm. so this should be an easy win. It's hard to see uh, what she could have done in the last eight months that would give those three Republican senators a reason to vote against her in yeah. this case. Um, you know, we, we do need to point out, uh, Renee, that this does not change the balance of the court. Uh, since she will report, replace Stephen Breyer, we still have a strong conservative majority on the court. Um, but again, as Andra and Patricia say, uh, the symbolism uh, of appointing, nominating a, a black woman to the court um, and then the contributions she can make to the court uh, are important regardless of uh, the leanings of the court politically. Yeah, it, it won't change the balance, uh, conservative, not conservative on the court. But Having gone through uh, get, watching Sotomayor get, uh, you know, become a, a, a Supreme Court judge, I, it was so emotional for the Hispanic community to watch one of our own up there, you know, and one of our own shine with intelligence, with pride. I mean, her her dissents, her opinions, they're, they're just, you know, they, they are passed around in Hispanic leader circles as... This is one of our own. And I that kind of pride, you know, for the African-American community, for, really for all of America. You know, this is someone who has done what what they do, paid their dues, um, has proven their their metal intelligence, et cetera, and will get a deserved seat on the Supreme Court, uh, thereby better reflecting America as a whole. So I, I you know, I. It's going to be uh, an interesting, always is, right, uh, Senate confirmation hearings, and that, that'll be news, and people will tune in, and I can't wait to watch her, uh, you know, handle the questions like we know she can in the same way Sotomayor did, uh, and have those who are, are fans of just watching hard work be rewarded, uh, you know, just being with pride. Uh, Patricia, before we move on, I think there's one other interesting element about this announcement this morning. Uh, here we are in the midst of literally a global crisis because of Ukraine. Uh, the president has spent an enormous amount of time working on the issue, speaking to the American people about America's response to what's happening. Uh, and yet, and yet, this morning he signaled that it is not going to distract from other business that's important to this White House and, and from his point of view, to the country. So he goes ahead and announces this nomination, which uh, strikes me as being a, a very smart way to say uh, we have other things that we must deal with. Yes? Yes. Uh, it, it also really is a function of the Senate calendar. Uh, getting anybody mm -hmm. through the judiciary process takes um, several weeks. Uh, then you have to get it. It won't be hard to get it scheduled for a vote, but you have to allow for any unanticipated delays and you have to allow for um, anything unexpected uh, to come back and try it again. You just can't leave this to the very end and get the closer they get to election day, the harder it is to get something big through the Senate. And um, he's already outside of the window when Democrats thought he would have made an announcement anyway. So I think before things um, in Ukraine uh, descend or we don't know exactly what's going to happen in Ukraine, just to go ahead and get this one piece of business done, get it on the calendar, get it moving forward. I think it's something he needed to do. Well, uh, to add just a little bit of a twist to this, it's hard the closer you get to Election Day, unless you are Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who wants to get Amy Coney Barrett up, uh, through the Senate confirmation process just weeks before the 2020 election. Uh, we can't forget that that took place, Patricia. Yes, but it was controversial. And, oh, sure. Uh, Democrats were furious, <laughs> absolutely livid. And that was about 90% of their complaint was that, what are you doing? You know, so, um, uh, and once uh, the midterms come and go, then you get into an entire new precedent that Republicans have set to say, well, you might be a lame duck president. I don't think it's time for you to have another uh, nomination to the bench. You so are, you are. I think it's smart. One fun fact about um, the uh, uh 
possibly future justice. She's related by a marriage to um, Paul Ryan, the former Speaker of the House, which I think is a fun twist. And so he's put a statement out about her um, that he is uh, obviously enormously fond of her, loves her. Sometimes <laughs> they differ on their politics, but um, they are, uh, in fact, family. And so I know he'll be watching it carefully. Well, here's another fun fact that um, uh, Natalie Mendenhall and Sam Burmistoz pointed out to me. Her grandparents are from Georgia. Um, and I'm not quite sure. I don't know where, but we'll find that out and uh, maybe have a little more about her background in uh, shows to, to, to come. Um, all right. Uh, let's move on. Uh, Patricia, let me read to you uh, from the lead to, I think it's yesterday's uh, jolt or maybe two days ago. President Donald Trump is stepping up his support for his handpicked list of Georgia candidates so much so that his Mar-a-Lago resort is starting to feel like just another stop on the Georgia campaign trail. Um, so he's got fundraising events. We know March 16th he's doing a fundraising event for David Perdue. Uh, he's added one for Vernon Jones, right? And Herschel Walker's been spending a lot of time as recently as just this week at Mar-a-Lago, correct? That's absolutely right. Um, Herschel Walker was there for a fundraiser on Wednesday. Um, he will be back apparently next week for the first annual golf, maybe like first America golf invitational, something to that, something of that nature. So, but the point is Herschel Walker is scheduled to be back in Mar-a-Lago. Um, and then Trump has scheduled these next two fundraisers at Mar-a-Lago. What I think is crazy about these is that the campaigns have to pay the catering and rental fees when they go to Mar-a-Lago. So this is not, there's nothing cheap at Mar-a-Lago and there's nothing for free at Mar-a-Lago. Um, also, a favorite activity of mine is going through people's disclosures and realizing that Donald Trump has not given $1 of his own money to any of these candidates, um, nor have any of the Trump family, um, which I just think is also an interesting twist on uh, doing this. But it is crucial for these Trump candidates to get in front of Trump-friendly donors. They need that money, and they need it quickly because they're all in primaries coming up in May. And so they need to start banking money very quickly. And I am uh, certain that part of the pitch to these candidates, and Donald Trump made a pitch to every one of these candidates to challenge sitting members or um, sitting officials in Georgia, was hey, listen, don't worry about it. Money's not going to be a problem. And so uh, this is part of, hopefully, on their part, trying to make money uh, not a problem. Yeah, Renee, I don't have the latest totals, but Trump is sitting on a pot of money that's worth $150 million, maybe more at this point, that he's raised since leaving the White House. And as Patricia points out, it's not going out to these candidates he supports right now. Um, but, you know, the question becomes... Is, there, is Trump losing any of his mojo uh, in terms of candidates he's backing? There are probably some states where that's the case. The question is whether it's true in Georgia or not. Yeah, it's, it's, we're not going to find out for, for a number of months whether that's true or not. But I do, I do think, as you point out, it's very interesting that he's just uh, loading up his coffers uh, with money and and donations uh you know i mean it's 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 his mo he runs a business right now his business is the business of trump political um you know when when he came out with uh with the truth app and and how that had has had some problems in in unrolling um you know everyone's kind of thinking how how is he how is he connecting what he does on the tech entrepreneur business side with his politics, with donations, and how is he going to adequately disperse that? As you pointed out, he has not himself. Um, so it's, it's, it remains to be seen how his influence is going to uh, affect the midterms, particularly here in Georgia. I do think that in the last 48 hours, he's given a lot of folks uh, who have unsubscribed from the Trump train, more ammunition to uh, to to stand against and have not him influence their decisions and their vote. Andra, to what extent can Donald Trump's endorsement and appearances here in Georgia, which he says he's going to be making, uh, push David Perdue across the finish line in the governor's race, um, push Vernon uh, uh, Jones into uh, 
the Republican nomination in the 10th district in what's already a very crowded field in which there are also other people who are much better known in the district. What's your take on all that? So, I mean, I think ultimately this is still an empirical question that people are actively thinking about and testing. My hypotheses are is that Trump's uh, endorsements never mattered as much as we thought that they did. Um, and that there's a possibility that they may wane, but I need data. So I can't say that definitively without being able to look at that. I do think fundamentals matter. And so if you're a terrible candidate, um, if you aren't a strategic candidate and you make poor decisions, right, Donald Trump isn't going to be able to save you. Nobody would actually be able to save you in those instances. And so I think we're going to see some of that come out in the wash. The thing that just gets me sort of about this, right, because people clearly don't see that. Donald Trump's claim to fame has actually been in branding and self-promotion and marketing. And so people think that this is politics, but really this is all about marketing Donald Trump and just coming up with different revenue streams. And sooner or later, people are going to realize that this is Lucy with the football. And so people sit um, and they kiss and they kiss the ring and they go run for the kick like Charlie Brown. Right. And they end up on their backs. And so I don't know how much learning is going to have to take place for people to realize that they are not getting as much out of this as he is getting out of it. There just doesn't seem to be a lot of reciprocity. People are rationalizing that Mar-a-Lago and the Trump name has like some in-kind value. And I imagine that it does. But at the end of the day, when you actually are having to do fee for service, for the person who's supposed to be helping you out because you're building their political empire, something tells me that this is a really unequal relationship. And, you know, one day somebody will get this and actually speak out against it. Patricia? Um, well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Andra has basically said it all. Um, one thing I will say is that when you go to these events for um, the, uh, county Republican parties, <clears throat> the energy is with the Trump wing. These are the people who go to those morning breakfasts on a Saturday. Um, they come out in huge numbers. If somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene is the special guest, um, she gets standing ovations wherever she goes. Um, this is a very real factor in Republican Party politics. Um, if Donald Trump were to disappear tomorrow, I don't think that sentiment and that fervor for that kind of politics is going to disappear either. And so I think that will be a, a real test for the Republican Party over the next um, one year, two years, five years, and 10 years. What does it mean to be a Republican? And does it mean to be loyal to Donald Trump? Does it mean to continue his policies even when he's off the stage? Um, and has it just so fundamentally changed from the concept of being a traditional conservative that there's no longer room in this party for that kind of person going forward? All right. Uh, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way now because we have a lot more to talk about when we come back on Political Rewind, including a couple of items from at the, down at the state capitol and some interesting news out of the Georgia Senate race the Raphael Warnock Senate race. And we'll do that and more after these messages. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Quick note, uh, if you're not a subscriber yet to the uh, Political Rewind uh, weekly newsletter, we'd sure like you to join us. You can get it delivered to your email every Wednesday. Uh, just go to gpb.org slash newsletters, and you'll find a place to subscribe right there. I, I try to break down what I think are the kind of the top stories of the week in Georgia politics and then, and then find a way to add something that's got a little bit of lightness or some humor <laughs> around it because we all need that. So we'd love to have you join us uh, for our newsletter. Um, all right. Patricia, <laughs> Herschel Walker uh, made a statement that we've got to talk about for a minute. Uh, he's, he's mad at both David Perdue and Brian Kemp and doesn't plan on endorsing either of them. He uh, told a crowd up at the University of North Georgia this, I don't support either one of them. I'm mad at both of them. I speak the truth and let me tell you why. And he goes on and says, I've known Kemp since I was 16. I've known Perdue since I was 19. And he says, what I want to say is let's bring this party together. we got to bring the party together. So Herschel Walker is not going to weigh in on the governor's race. And I'm, I understand why he's upset with David Perdue, but there was no question that Brian Kemp was going to run for re-election. I'm not quite sure what he's done wrong here. Well, first of all, I'd like to know how he's known David Perdue since he was 19 and how he's yeah. known Brian Kemp since he was 16. 
as an aside. Um, also, we have talked to lots of Republicans who don't want to get involved in this primary. I've never talked to a Republican who said he or she had will not vote for either Purdue or Kemp in the primary. Yeah. That is a new one on me. Yeah. Um, this is also audio that was um, sent to us, by the way. Uh, he did not know that there were, um, that I think these uh, comments would be repeated. I don't know if he would have cared or not. It's certainly not anything that we've heard him say, but it really does get to the fact that um, Herschel Walker, because we haven't seen a whole lot of him on the campaign trail, um, I think he is a quite unpredictable candidate and kind of an unknowable candidate in a lot of ways for Republicans. He does say things that are off the wall, that are unexpected, um, that might be misread when in print. And so I think it's a little bit of a wild card. And to say that you don't support either the governor or the former senator challenging him right now is unusual. It's uh, more than a little unorthodox. Um, the point is he wants the party to unite, and I think that's what all Republicans want. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um so, Andra and Renee, let, let me ask you to comment on something that Patricia wrote uh, this week. Uh, Patricia, uh, we know that, that Herschel Walker may very well be running against uh, Raphael Warnock in the general election. He's certainly leading in all the polls of Republican candidates right now. But Patricia basically wrote this week that um, the radical socialist, Andra, who uh, uh, Republicans like Kelly Leffler painted the picture of in terms of Raphael Warnock, certainly has not emerged since he became a member of the United States Senate. Uh, talk about the kind of road that Warnock has uh, taken for himself up there. Well, I mean, the reason why the radical socialist didn't emerge was because he never existed. <laughs> that, that, that was a straw man construction that was just using Republican talking points and not applying them in a very depth way in a local, more local state context. So, uh, when Kelly Leffler went after um, Raphael Warnock, one, she was just using national talking points, right? So it's a reflection of the fact that, um, you know, all politics, state and local politics, right, have become nationalized in an era of hyper-partisanship and polarization. Then, um, you know, it works, right, because he's an African-American candidate, right? And so people already think, because they do know that on economic issues, Blacks tend to be um, left of center, Right, that you can now label everybody and it really sticks to, to, to black folks. So we've even talked about this in the context of Stacey Abrams. The pragmatic Stacey Abrams who could work with Republicans, right, has now been nationalized into a boogeyman who's maybe like, you know, a degree of separation away from AOC, which is not true. Um, and so that manifested itself. Um, you know, the other part of the 2020 campaign was Kelly Leffler trying to portray him as a radical by tying him to Jeremiah Wright because of the connections between Black ministers and liberation theology. And those were heavily racially laden. And um, and, and, and Warnock had to contest that by, with, with puppies, with Christmas lights and other things to try to de-racialize himself and make him appear less threatening because that's something that Black candidates, particularly Black male candidates, have to face on a, on a, on a regular basis. So um, I think the Raphael Warnock that we have seen in the Senate is the Raphael Warnock that we should have expected to see, um, you know, based on the things that he said on the campaign trail, based on sort of his work, you know, as a pastor, his involvement in the community, he hasn't done anything that's been surprising, but the narratives have looked uh, have looked different because people were trying to, you know, take advantage of his civil rights background and his race to try to portray him as something that he really was never and never was in the first place. Uh, Renee, by the time we get to the general election, once the Republicans have picked their candidate, we know that this is going to be perhaps the most closely watched Senate race in the country. It's certainly going to be perhaps the best funded of all Senate races. Raphael Warnock has already raised more money than any other incumbent uh, up for reelection. Uh, this year. And Herschel Walker, I think, is having the same kind of success as a, a challenger uh, in a U.S. Senate race. So uh, this is going to be an extraordinary contest. And uh, Republicans believe that they can take this seat back. Um, but uh, especially given Joe Biden's low approval ratings, uh, if those don't turn around, they feel even more confident. So talk to us about that. Yeah, well, money's going to pour into the state. Uh, the, the the world is going to be watching Georgia again, uh, like like it did during the presidential, like it did during the runoffs. Uh, as as uh, with respect to Senator Warnock, uh, you know, just Georgia elected a man who is voting the in the way that folks who have known him 
expected him to. Uh, fancy that, right? Um, the the characterizations and how he was portrayed during during the Loeffler campaign was uh, they are proven to be just untruths. They're they're lies, you know. So, you know, he he's going to have a obvious um, advantage here over over Walker because we don't know anything about him. He's not. Um, opened up access to interviews. Uh, he does have a questionable past, uh, you know, with the law, with uh, um, domestic abuse, apparently. I mean, the list goes on and on. There's going to be a lot of questions about uh, not only where he stands on issues, but how his past uh, does not reflect uh, George's future, right? So, you know, it, it, it will be, uh, you know, the debates, uh, you know, hopefully they will happen and we will see who stands on what and how they make the appeal to the Georgia voter. But Warnock is in a very good position um, because of his track record in the short time that he's been in, in Senate. And it just, uh, again, reflects his longstanding uh, citizenship here as a uh, as a Georgian, and that's something that I think people are going to really respond to. Patricia, if you don't mind my reading back your own words to you, here's one paragraph from your column. Instead, Warnock has become a reliable vote for Senate Democrats, a meticulously tailored, high-profile progressive at the mainstream of his party who still looks for bipartisan measures to join when he can. Recently, he introduced or joined a series of bills to address pocketbook issues like the price of gas, medicine, and other necessities. Yeah, these are just kitchen table issues that I think Georgians across the state um, in some cases are really struggling with. Uh, but I really wanted to challenge the image that was portrayed of Raphael Warnock. Because he had never been in elected office, I think um, he was a blank slate in a lot of ways. And so Republicans really tried, as Andres said, said, to make him um, scary, to make him untrustworthy, to call him a Marxist sympathizer radical liberal Raphael Warnock. We heard so many times in that debate, it ended up on Seth Meyers' late night TV show. It, was, it really just was ridiculous at a certain point. And so I wanted to sort of take a, get a report card out there to say, he is a liberal. He is progressive. He also focuses on um, strategic tailored initiatives in a way that I think is really smart politics for Georgians who are really struggling with prices right now. So I think he's been a much more of a strategic mainstream Democrat than he was ever portrayed to be. And the attack on him, I really just thought was fundamentally unfair. And now a year later, we can lay down his record and see that it was also inaccurate. Okay. Um, I mentioned before the break that there were some legislative issues, but I want to turn to a, a different topic, if you don't mind. Here's what I'll say about the legislative issue. Uh, the state Senate has now passed a measure that will uh, force transgender school athletes in schools to compete uh, according to the gender on their birth certificate. It's highly controversial. It's something that's never passed in the legislature, never gotten this far before. This is an election year. And so we'll look at it next week because this thing is still moving forward in the legislature. But the reason I want to put that to the side is, Andre Gillespie, you, I want to get you to give us a report from the front lines. You went to an event with Nate Silver, the founder of 538, and one of the great data crunchers and uh, election prognosticators. And you went there to hear his thoughts on how the midterm elections are shaping up. And I think it would be fascinating to hear what he had to say. Yeah, so um, my department uh, hosted uh, Nate Silver last night um, at Emory University, um, and I got a chance to ask him questions along with my colleague Bernard Fraga. Um, and uh, Nate's uh, comments were, you know, sort of conventional wisdom. Democrats have headwinds going into the the 2022 race. So if we think about historical trends and the incumbent party president's uh, incumbent president's party losing seats. In the general, uh, usually, you know, in midterm years and sort of what that looks like. But then he also looked at sort of what are the other factors that are going to go into, you know, how, uh, you know, who's going to win and who's going to lose overall. And, and I should say that, like, you know, we think about this kind of in the aggregate sense. We're not necessarily predicting individual races here and there. Um, you know, one of the things that he argued could give uh, Democrats 
hope is Donald Trump's unpopularity. Um, we'd have to factor in whether or not people are actually going to incorporate the things that he said this week and say that he's a non-starter and people associated with him are toxic. Um, also, he, he actually held out hope, and I, I wasn't 100% sure that I agreed with him, on the idea that if COVID finally goes away this summer, that might actually lend itself to increased overall optimism that might actually make uh, President Biden and the Democrats look a little bit better. Um, I think that that's something that we have to wait to see. My challenge to that is the idea of uh, the damage to the Biden brand as, as being competent. Um, and that's still going to persist. And I think people are still going to have some, um, some memories and some uh, resentments about that. But it was a very, very interesting talk. The students were very engaged. Um, even the students who asked questions, like a lot of them were about politics. But, you know, I forget 538 is, is also about about sports probabilities as well. <laughs> um, and so there were students who were asking questions about sports probabilities, too. So. And, and about sports gambling, right? Um, not quite gambling. Um, oh, oh, you know, okay. there were questions about, you know, could you add the PGA into your analyses ah, of things? Okay. And the best <laughs> bet was like, does Major League Baseball start on time? Like, which is more likely to happen? Uh, Major League Baseball starting on time versus having, um, oh, the Democrats actually retain control of the House of Representatives. He was like, <laughs> baseball's the safer bet there. <laughs> so. All right. Um, thank you uh, for giving us a little information on Nate Silver. I, if you don't read, by the way, 538, I would highly recommend it to all of you out there. It's just 538.com, all spelled out. And uh, uh, Nate and his team are really smart analysts. Um all right, so we're just about out of time for uh, today's show. And I just want to thank uh, Renee Alegria for being with us, as always, Mundo Hispanico Digital. Renee, how do people get to your website? Just mundohispanico.com, right? That's it, mundohispanico.com, correct. And, and as I've said before, if, like me, you've got one language, English, you just ask Google to translate it. And I will say, Renee, sometimes the translations are a little funky, <laughs> but well, actually, I, you know, actually, one thing, Bill, we do have an English version of Mundo. Oh, on I the didn't site. know that. So, oh. yeah, so you just have to toggle up there in the upper right-hand corner, and uh, we publish uh, everything in English and Spanish. We uh, we certainly represent the acculturated Hispanic as well, like myself, born and raised in the USA, educated in English. So we do. We do publish in English as well. All right. Thank you. I did not realize that. Patricia Murphy, you know, obviously a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, I look always look forward to reading what you tell us in the jolt and to seeing your columns on Wednesdays and Sundays. And uh, Professor Andrew Gillespie, thank you as well for being with us today. Uh, that's it. We're out of time for this week's Political Rewind. It's an incredibly consequential week. Uh, over the weekend, like all of you out there, we're going to be watching to see what happens in Ukraine, uh, the possibility that Russia is going to take control of Kiev, as we're now calling uh, the capital of the country. Um, and on Monday's show, we're going to talk a little bit more about what happened over the weekend. We're putting together a panel of not just experts, but people who have families back in Ukraine, people who've immigrated, emigrated from Ukraine and are living here in Georgia right now. So I hope you'll be with us for that. We're all out of time for today's Political Rewind. Uh, my thanks to the team that works behind the scenes on the show. I'm Bill Nigat. See you on Monday. And in the meantime, take care and please stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.